0: Hope Church. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning. A little bit different this morning than most mornings. Uh, Chet and Claire are celebrating 15 years of marriage and are flying all over the world. So we're very grateful to them um, that they get a a little bit of a break and some time to enjoy each other. Um, So keep them in your prayers uh, this coming week, that the Lord will bless their time together and and grow them in their relationship with each other. And uh, we've also got a lot of folks on the road today, um, a lot of uh, friends visiting folks for the holiday weekend. So just keep, uh, keep our family in prayer, as a lot of us are on the road. But for the rest of us that are here this morning, we are going to continue our study through the book of Matthew, and today we'll be looking at Matthew 22, and we're going to be going over verses 15 through 46. So if you would, go ahead and turn there with me in your in your Bibles. And I'm going to go ahead and read um, this whole section. It's a little pretty lengthy, just so we can get a good context. Um, and then we'll go back through and discuss it, and take it from there. So let's go ahead and read. I'm going to be reading first from the New King James Version. I'll be reading kind of from the NIV mostly once we... Um, uh, once we're going verse to verse. But this is first from the New King James Version, going all the way through it. And this is Matthew 22 and, and verse 15. And we're going to go all the way through the, the, through the chapter. Matthew 22, 15. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent uh, to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Uh, Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Remember therefore, uh, re- excuse me, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When, he had, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Then uh, the same day, the Sadducees, uh, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and, and uh, asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses says that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offerings for his brother. Uh, now, there were, seven, uh, there, uh, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and had no offspring, left uh, his wife to his brother likewise, the second also, and the third, and even to the seventh. Last of all, uh, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered them, saying, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees uh, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together... Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great, uh, the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make the enemies a footstool. If David calls him Lord, how can he be a son? And no one was able to answer him a word, uh, nor from that day did anyone dare to question him any more. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, these scriptures that we have, um, that you intended for us to have, for us to learn, to know um, about your Son and about your love for us and to have correct understanding of who he is. And thank you so much um, for giving these to us so that we can understand you um, and to help us to think rightly about these verses and to understand them the way that you would have us understand them. Uh, And that you would use these for us to live faithful lives to you, and to be about your work and your kingdom. And pray this in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. All right, so we'll go back through this and take it piece by piece because there's some there's some technical things going on in these verses. But real quick, just kind of a a brief overview: like where are we in the life of Jesus? You know, we've already read um, before. That he's made this great revelation to his disciples when Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. He says, Don't tell anybody this. So he's already very clearly said to all of his closest disciples, I am the Messiah. The one that everybody's looking forward to, you know, this, uh, these people are looking forward to the person that's going to come and save Israel. That's me. But then he's also told them very clearly, I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, I will be mistreated at the hands of men, and I'm going to die. And they don't quite understand this. It's going to come clear to them later, but it it should be confusing to them based upon all the information they had in the culture that they grew up in. Um, So he's he's stated these things very clearly, and then we've seen his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he is now in Jerusalem, and with these verses that we're reading today, we're only a few short days away from the crucifixion and eventual resurrection of our Lord. So we are right there. And there's a few different uh, people that are uh, groups of people in Judaism that we need to keep kind of their background in mind. I know we've talked a lot about them already, but there's four main groups of uh, Jewish uh, people in Jerusalem at this time. We have the Pharisees, the Sadducees. We also have the Zealots and the Essenes. In our, con- in our context today, we're talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, so let's go and we're going to look back at verses 13 through 22. Um, In these verses, we see kind of the relationship between our earthly respect for government and our spiritual respect for God. So we have two groups here in this section. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they try to trick Jesus with a question about the imperial tax or the poll tax. Now, you know, the Pharisees have already been plotting to destroy Jesus, so this isn't the first time the Pharisees are trying to trip him up. But at this point, they're trying to do away with him. They're trying to find a way to catch him and trap him on a, some political ground. Where or, or Originally, they were trying to p- capture him and trap him on a religious ground so they can take him before the Sanhedrin, find him guilty, and do away with them. They are ready for his, uh, for his influence in Jerusalem to end. But trapping him on religious grounds has not really worked. So now they're going to try to trap him on some political grounds. If they can get him to say a treasonous statement against Caesar, and maybe they can get Caesar to do away with him. And you know, ultimately, in a few short days, it'll be both the Sanhedrin and Pilate. It'll be the Jewish leadership and the Roman government that are together that eventually. Um, uh, that eventually lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so this is leading up to that. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to, um, trying to make him stumble. So first of all, we, we already know a bit about the Pharisees. We know that uh, we've talked about them pretty extensively here in our, in our study in Matthew. We know that they're looking forward to the Messiah. We know that they're waiting for somebody to come up like David, rise and throw off the shackles of the reign of the Roman Empire, um, that Israel will live in the covenant promises God had promised to them that they will be a nation uh, for God uh, and that they won't be uh, having to pay taxes to somebody else that shouldn't be over over them. But then you have this group that are the Herodians. And as we look through Scripture, there's all kinds of Herods. So we see Herod Agrippa, Herod Antipas, who at this point is most likely the controller of Galilee. At this time we have you know Herod the Great, if we remember, he was the one that had the children of Bethlehem killed when he heard that the Messiah was going to be born from the wise men. So there's a bunch of Herods. The Herods had come to power, and they ruled this area, most of Palestine, under the good graces of Rome. So we've got a Roman Empire, we've got the Caesar in Rome who's over everything, and the, this group of, of line from Herod, um, has been ruling that area. And they also, the, I think the first Herod that came to power there was half Jewish. So the Jewish people don't really like them because they're not Jewish. But they also have a very good understanding of Jewish culture and what makes the Jews happy. If we rem- remember, the temple was rebuilt by Herod. So there's a number of people that are Jewish that don't really like the idea that Rome is in charge and that Rome is over over them. But they also don't want to shake the boat. They like that... Herod built them a temple. I mean, there's some you know, conflict with Herod, but also things are kind of copacetic to an extent. They don't want, like the zealots want, for there to be an uprising and an overthrow of the Roman government and Herod locally, and then just for Rome to come in and crush them and wipe them out. That, that's not a good idea. So the Herodians le- might, not, might not be the biggest cheerleaders of Herod, but they're also like, we're not overthrowing Herod because we want things copacetic. Uh, so there's a lot of political tension that's going on here. Um, in this time, from all different directions. So we've got this. So normally, the Pharisees and Herodians probably aren't super close because the Pharisees are waiting for the Messiah to come and overthrow uh, is, you know the, this reign, and the Herodians are like, nah, let's just kind of keep things going. Things aren't as bad as they could be. This could be a lot worse. And so these interesting you know, bedfellows are here together coming uh, before Jesus, asking him this question about paying taxes. Now, he's going to alienate somebody. They ask him an either-or question. Is it, is it good to pay taxes or is it not good to pay taxes to Caesar? So if he's, he could come out and be like, you know, Jesus promised this land to Israel. Caesar is not our king. He has nothing to do. You guys don't pay your taxes because, you know, God is, our, is the God of Israel. Forget this Caesar guy. And the, the, there's not, like, freedom of speech at this time. You know, we're not, we're not. this is not a democracy they're living in. And if that was the case, they could have had Jesus, uh, you know, in prison, possibly killed for... Uh, saying treasonous statements, or if you, or if you, like acquiesces and says, "Oh no, we're going to pay taxes." We, uh, you know, Caesar's good, Herod's essentially good. Then a lot of the people that follow Jesus that are looking forward to the Messiah are going to say, "What's this guy talking about?" I mean, they're going to tr- they're trying to catch him in between. So they got they hatch this plan. It's like this is a good plan, politically or or religiously. We're going to catch him somewhere. Um, so they come to him with these questions about taxes. Now, who likes to pay taxes? nobody i've never i 've never met anybody that says, "Yeah, I want to pay some taxes Now these taxes are especially difficult we remember, if we remember from chapter seventeen uh, there was a temple tax that was an annual relig- religious tax on adult males administered by the Jewish leadership to fund temple worship now that 's different than what 's happening here. Remember Jesus paid the temple tax by that amazing miracle where he had Simon go get a fish out of the go fishing, find a fish, and there 's uh, a coin in the fish 's mouth to pay the temple tax for uh, Jesus and for Simon. Now that was different. that was helping to fund the worship in the temple, so they probably weren 't uh, so upset about that, but this right here is the Roman head tax or the Roman census tax, so it was an annual tax that was paid, not even to the local government, this is going straight to Rome. Um, straight to Caesar and if we remember Joseph and Mary had to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem city of David which will come into play later here to register and they had to pay that tax they we're going to have a census every year you're going to pay an annual tax it was about a day's wages so every 365 days you got to take one of those and just give them to Caesar and that's, that was just one tax they also had land taxes import taxes road use taxes city entrance taxes transportation tax salt tax there was even some sales taxes. So these people were heavily taxed by, a, by, um, by this guy that's in charge, that's Herod, that has nothing to do with Jer- Jerusalem or Israel, and they don't think they should be paying taxes to him, but they don't have a whole lot of choice. And also they have these taxes going to Caesar on another, you know, somewhere way, away, far away from them. And so can you imagine, like, being in Georgia? You're paying your taxes. All right, we're paying state and local taxes. I mean, nobody has fun with that, right? But that's my country. Could you imagine if we were occupied by another country and we're paying taxes to, I don't know, Argentina, Germany, somebody else, and it's like they're not even here. And they have their rulers here over us. We have no say in the government, and we're paying taxes to them. And we don't we're not even God's promised people in God's promised land, so that's totally different. Yeah, totally different. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There you go. So exactly. So you can imagine so, you can imagine that if you like, t- taxes might be a touchy subject for us. It ain't nothing like it was touchy for them. They even had this money that had Caesar's face on it. So, every time they were using this money, it's a nice reminder that, you know, you are not in control, <laughs> you know. And those promises God had given you that you guys read about and you worship in the temple, part of that's not happening right now. And every time you look at a coin, that was just a little reminder. So, let's read um, these verses, uh, just this first section again, verses 15 through 22. I'm going to read this out of the NIV. So, keep all that in mind when we're reading these verses, what's going on. So, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. So, we know the trap that they're going to set. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, probably for the first time these guys are hanging out trying to trap Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. What a nice intro, right? So they are they are actively trying to do away with Jesus, and they're paying him these really nice compliments, uh, which you know is not a you know, not a bad uh, not a bad decision. But also they say, we know that you speak the truth, and which he does because he's called out the Pharisees for multiple things in the past. You know they know that he's gonna he's gonna say. He's, they know that he's going to teach something authoritatively. Jesus is always saying something with authority and, and wowing everybody. So they're waiting for him to go one way or another, and then they're going to go, aha. Um, so they say in verse 17, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? I can see them just like, you know, tapping their fingers together. We're about, about to get him, about to get him. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, you know, we see a bit more of his, his deity here too. He knows what's, in, what's on their minds. You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Now we throw around the word hypocrite a lot, but before Jesus, we don't see it in literature. So it wasn't something that was like common. Like we hear, "Ah, oh, he's a hypocrite," and that's kind of a common. This wasn't something that was super common back then. And a hypocrite was uh, these were, were actors during this time and time period. So we think of actors now. We think of somebody playing a role. Well, back then, you'd go to a big stage amphitheater type of thing. You think of Rome and, and those types of things. And people would have a play. They're far away. They would put a big old mask on. So you, may, you think of those smiley face masks and the frowny masks. Those are the people that are playing. So Jesus is saying, that's what you're like. You're coming in here with this mask on, you know, pretending to be one thing, but underneath, that is not, not what you are. He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show, uh, show me the coin that is used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is this? Whose inscription? So he's holding up this coin. All right, if you're going to pay the tax, what are you using? You're using this thing right here. Whose picture's on this coin? And and I'm sure they're all like, you don't have to remind us. We know. Caesar, you know. And he said to them, And give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So Jesus holds a coin, another reminder of their... Limited freedoms that they have, Um, and you know, they ask him an either-or question to trap him, and he gives them a both-and answer. Now, one of the teachings that we we can get from this is we are called to submit to governmental leaders, no matter what form of government government we're in. They're in an empire, and you know, this isn't a democracy. This isn't even what somebody would consider a good government. But Jesus is saying these are just taxes. That's what the government requires. That's what you pay, and that's something for us to take into consideration. You know, uh, we're living in a government. Where, when we're asked to do something by somebody that's an authority, we say yes, unless it clearly goes against the commands of God. Now, the Roman Empire was not a good empire. They did a lot of terrible things, and they, they're the, you know, I'm sure the money that they gave that went to the Roman government did a whole lot of terrible things. You know, but they were doing what they were called to do. So, a, as believers. And of those that represent our Lord, yeah, we are supposed to pay taxes. We are supposed to obey the laws when they don't go against what the Lord has asked of us. And we are to be good citizens. And this is not out out of allegiance to our government because our government is so great. But this is out of our allegiance to God that we are supposed to act uh, that way. We have human responsibility to leadership. And then we also have the spiritual responsibility to God. You know, he doesn't say it clearly, but I think it is very much implied here. He says... Who's, you know, whose image is this? And give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God's what is God's. Well, we, he's already answered what, one question. What is Caesar's? Well, the thing with his picture on it. He doesn't a- answer the question, well, what is God's, if there's a follow-up question. Well, whose image is on you? God's image. We are made in the image of God. Yeah, this is just a coin. It's just money. Give that to whose image it's on. But you are made in the image of God. God owns us. We need to submit and give to Him what is rightly His instead of trying to keep us for ourselves. We are made for Him. So we have, you know, human beings have infinite worth. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor. It doesn't matter who your parents were. We all are made in the image of God and have intrinsic worth. You know, we're not. We're not. You know, it's interesting if you come to the idea uh, if you don't have um, if you don't have an idea that there is a supreme, all powerful God. And I, I know that a lot of people that are atheists that act very good and do a lot of good things for people. But if that's your if if you come if you come to human worth thinking there is no God, then human beings don't have intrinsic worth. I mean, what's the, we're, if we're only time plus space plus matter plus chance, what's the difference between me and a cockroach and a tree? We all just happened. We're here for a while. We'll be gone. Nothing really matters because if there is no, if there is no God and everything is just completely chance, there is no evil. You know, evil is just like, we, we decide this is evil because these two things... You know, if two cockro- if a bunch of cockroaches decide that they're going to go kill a bunch of other cockroaches, we're not going to say, well, those cockroaches are evil. I mean, they're just doing whatever they were wired to do. Well, if human beings are just time plus space plus matter plus chance, we're doing what we're wired to do, then if somebody commits adultery, that's not evil. Somebody's just doing... It. If somebody kills somebody else, they're just, you know, survival of the fittest. They're looking out. You know, if you don't have... The only way that we could agree in an atheistic framework that people have... Are equal, which is almost silliest to say. All right, we decide people are equal, like money. You know, we'll we'll say we're all equal. Doesn't matter if you're rich, poor. Doesn't matter if you're disabled. Doesn't matter if you're eighty. Doesn't matter if you're two. Doesn't matter if you're thirty. Doesn't matter if you're strong or weak. We'll say everybody's equal, and the only reason is because we decide on it. Kind of like money. We all decide a dollar's worth a dollar. You know what I mean? But there's no intrinsic value. That value can go up and down based upon other factors, right? So. If I mean realistically, I, I think it's always interesting when you hear people say, I, "I can't believe in a God," because I just see so much evil in the world. Which is really funny thing to say, because it's like if you say that there is no God at all, and everything is time plus space plus matter plus chance, you're saying there is no evil. Just people do bad things, but that's how we were wired, and there is no God. So there's no, you know, no. So if you say I can't believe in God because there's evil, you're saying I can't believe in God because there's evil. You're also saying there's evil. And I don't like that. Therefore, I believe that evil doesn't exist. It's like well, that doesn't. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But if there is a God, then and He did make human beings in His image, then it doesn't matter. We are all equal. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter what someone else thinks of you. You are made in the image of God. And if somebody violates that, and somebody does something wrong, murder, you know, think of all the horrible things human beings have done to each other that we would say is evil. God is going to make that right. And that's the scary thing. And, and it makes more sense to me thinking that people are equal because we're made in the image of God and all these terrible things that we see, they genuinely are terrible, but they're genuinely going to be made right. I can't, it's hard to imagine that there is no evil. We're all just here by chance. We'll all be gone and nobody's going to be judged for anything that happened. Things just happen. That's, that doesn't, I mean, to me, that's not, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Anyway, I'm sorry. I kind of I got off the beaten path with that. But uh, the, I love that. I love that about this about this verse. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. When you're thinking, what should I do in this situation? You know, government. Give them, give them what's theirs. But you give to God what is God's. That's you. All right. Let's look at verses 22 through 33. You know, most people throughout history have believed in some sort of resurrection or some sort of afterlife, um, especially those that believe in a God. Um, the Sadducees were the only gr- Jewish sect that did not believe in an afterlife. They um also didn't believe in spiritual beings they didn 't believe in angels, so they really believed that God made the earth, the earth is what you got when you die that's it they weren 't very creative like the idea of like spiritual things going like spiritual things even taking place in this world no they, they reject that God made a physical earth it's, everything's physical that's it when you, when you die it 's over so they and the um, the, they, the Sadducees and the Pharisees butted heads on a lot of things, um, but the Sadducees. Also made a lot of money off sales in the temple. They were kind of the fat cats. They uh, were the richest group of, uh, the, of the Jewish elites. But they also were a very small group. And they also kind of liked... They didn't want the boat rocked in Jerusalem either because they were in a good position. They've got a lot of power, even though they're the small, a lot smaller than the Pharisees and the other groups. And, and now uh, they're also very afraid of a Jewish insurrection, like if the Jews do try to go throw off Rome, then that's not good for them because now they've lost all of their influence, they've lost their power, and they've lost their money. And the funny, the, not funny, but what does happen, you know, only, not very long after this, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem is leveled by Rome after insurrection. And that is the last time in any writing that we hear of the Sadducees. So the Sadducees end a few years after this. So they're rightly, politically, they are correctly afraid of Jesus. Because if, if Jesus rises up and everybody follows him in an insurrection against Rome, which he doesn't do, but he probably well could have. Remember, I mean, he came into Jerusalem and people are cheering and saying, yay, he doesn't like the Pharisees. If Jesus just wanted to take a political route, he could go and make friends with the Pharisees, go make friends with the zealots. He could go stand on a mountain, heal some people, show his power, hold up a sword and say, all right, let's go take out Herod. And he would have had most of Israel behind him. They very likely could have physically taken over Herod's reign. Um, and, I mean, well, Jesus is also infinite, so he could just say, Herod, die. But, I mean, from a, human, from a human perspective, he could easily have made that happen. So the, the Sadducees, we don't see them earlier in, in Jesus' teaching coming against them, because they don't really care. He says he's a Messiah. The Sadducees aren't waiting for a Messiah. Um, so they don't really care what he has to say, but now he's come in, he's cleansed the temple, which means they're making less money in the temple. He's P- looks like a lot of people are going to follow him. They're worried about insurrection and losing their power. So now the Sadducees have got skin in the game and they're going to come against Jesus too. Um, and also, there's plenty of verses in the Old Testament that talk about an afterlife. So we have the Sadducees that don't believe in any type of afterlife. You can look, th- all, I, mean, I was going to quote a bunch of verses, but I know I'm taking a long time this morning. So there's a bunch of verses in the Psalms, there's a bunch in the prophets that very clearly say that there's going to be life after death there's no questioning here but the Sadducees only believe in the Torah they only believe um, uh, in the they only believe in the books of uh, Moses um, so they only believe here in the first five books in your Bible, and it is not super, super, super clear in, in that there's no like explicit, explicit statement that talks in those verses about the resurrection, but it becomes very clear in the Old Testament when you look at the Old Testament as a whole that yes, there is life after death, there's no question, but they reject everything that's not in those few books, and, and so, um, so they're very narrow in their, in their way there. So that's all kind of backstory here as we look at these verses when the Sadducees come to him. So let's read verses 23 through 32. Uh, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, it's spelled right out, um, come to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry. The widow and raise up offerings for him. So it says Moses said this, right? So this is actually coming um, from a, a verse in Deuteronomy twenty-five, five through six. It says, "If if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, uh, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law. The first... Uh, Son, uh, she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So, to, uh, to our minds, it sounds kind of funny. Uh, but also remind, remember that in, the, in Judaism, starting with Abraham, all the promises of God, they all have lineage as part of that. Um, all, your line, everybody that was Jewish could trace their line back, I mean, all the way back to Abraham, pretty much. So, this was very, very, very important. And we see a number, of, there's a number of verses in Scripture where this actually comes into play. Uh, I'm not going to re- go through all of them, but one of the beautiful illustrations that we see is in the book of Ruth. Remember when Naomi, Ruth, and Orpha. They're all in the family, and all three of their husbands die. they essentially become beggars because it 's not like the system that we have today where it 's like, "Oh, you just go get a job because it wasn't it wasn 't an employer employee life back then, so it wasn 't like oh i 'll just go find a job you know my husband's done to go find a job it 's not like you can go uh, put in applications at all the you know local restaurants it didn 't it didn't work that way um, but So these three women that were godly women that had godly husbands essentially become beggars. They survive by gleaning in the fields. And the Lord works it out so that Ruth's dead husband's brother, Boaz, fulfills his duty and happily marries Ruth. Um, Now, And they have a son, Obed. And here's an interesting thing. Their son, Obed, is the grandfather of David. So this command... Is, a, uh, is very important for lineage, but it also comes into play in the direct line of David and the Messiah. So this is very important. And it's not like the guy, and we do see in Scripture where some guys don't want to fulfill this because they're like, I don't want to raise up uh, children for somebody else that's not me. Not for my dead brother. I ain't doing that. God took him out. We also see that in, women in Scripture want this because they want to carry on the name of their de- it's not, it's not some, This isn't something that people didn't want. For us, it would be like, ooh, that's kind of icky. But in this time, and you got to keep in mind, in this time, this was something that everybody agreed. Everybody around the table was, what do you think about this? And like, this is good. You know, Everybody would agree that this is good. Um, so they ask him this question that's absolutely ridiculous. So they say essentially, guy dies, has a wife, no kid. Mary's brother, Mary's brother, Mary's brother. Now there's seven of them. This lady's been with seven different guys that are brothers. The resurrection happens. Whose husband is she going to be? Because she's been with all of them. How, how are you guys going to work that out with the resurrection? And the funny thing is, now, so these Sadducees think they're pretty, pretty, pretty slick. And you know, the funny thing is, they probably have been holding this one over the Pharisees for a long time. It's like, all right, Pharisees, you say know so much. How's this going to work in the resurrection? And they don't have a good answer for them. You know, And this time, they, didn't, they argued about how the resurrection was going to happen. Are you going to be, when you, when you come back to life, will, be, will you be in the clothes that you died in? Um, some people in this time wrote that there would still be marriage and people would have children even in the resurrection. So people who are looking forward to the resurrection have really no idea what it's going to be like. And so the Sadducees that say there is no resurrection ask this ridiculous question because they're going to say, Jesus, you know, Pharisees haven't been able to answer this for a long time. Jesus isn't going to be answer, able to answer this. Jesus replied to them in verse 29, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I mean, he just calls it like it is. So first of all, they don't know the scriptures because they reject most of the scriptures that the Lord purposely gave to them to have understanding. If they would believe the Psalms, the writings of David, if they would believe the prophets, it is very clear that there's going to be life after death and they wouldn't be asking this ridiculous question. Also, he's saying you're in error you don't, uh, because you do, uh, do not know the, the power of God. These people can't even fathom that there's a spiritual life. Angels, that doesn't make any sense. I can't see them. Life after death, that doesn't make any sense. If you were to talk like parallel universes or heavens or different types of things that God could have created, they're like, well, God can't do that. I mean, their view of God is very, very narrow and very small. The idea that he could raise people up, no. No, that's not, no. He, can, he maybe can make stuff, but he's not bringing people back from the dead. That doesn't happen. You know, they have a very, very small uh, picture of God, and Jesus calls them out for it. You, you don't understand because you don't understand the power of God, and you do not understand the Scripture. And so he, he hammers them on this. At the resurrection, people ne- neither marry nor be given in ma- marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. They don't believe in angels first of all so they're like oh well yeah they'll be like the angels in heaven he- like so you're saying there's another place that's a spiritual place or has different types of bodies than we have now you know we've heard this junk before so they're not so even at this point he gives that retort and they're thinking yeah right and first of all people don't become angels in heaven they are like the angels angels and human beings are totally different we'll have that discussion a different day but so they so they don't under, so they they're already like oh they're gonna be like the angels I got you Jesus so he's giving us the same you know same garbage that uh, that uh, the Pharisees give us I wonder if they're thinking that but he says this um, uh, um, uh, in verse thirty one but the res- uh, but about the resurrection of the dead have you not read what God said to you and here he quotes geniusly. Um, from uh, the Old Testament, from Exodus 3, 6. And it's something that's a refrain that's used multiple times in the Old Testament in what they believe is the inspired word of God. He says, um, I, the Lord says, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were, at, they were astonished at his teachings. Now this is this might seem like a trivial thing, but these are present tense verbs that God is saying. God very easily could have in the Old Testament said, I am speaking to you. I was your father's God. I was your father's father's God. I was the God of Abraham. I am now your God and I say to you, X. Could have said that quite clearly. He didn't say that. He said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Those being that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he said this, are not walking the face of the earth... Because they are walking with the Lord, and so he says this to the he says this uh, to the the Sadducees, and they are silent and have nothing else to say. So they were astonished at his teaching. And that takes us in here to verse thirty-four. So we'll look at verse thirty-four through thirty-nine. So the Pharisees have tried to test him once; didn't catch him. The they tried to, uh, and then the Sadducees tried to undermine his teaching. For ma- they try to get him to come up with some sort of ridiculous answer to a ridiculous question, but that does not work. He stymies them. Um, and then, here in verse 34, uh, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. And it's interesting, it says, so the, so the Pharisees are probably like, man... We couldn't catch Jesus. Man, the Sadducees couldn't catch Jesus, but Jesus told them, "Sadducees." I'm if they're thinking, I don't know if they're thinking that, but they might be. They might somebody might have heard that and be like, "Next time we have an argument with the Sadducees, we got something good to say." You know, maybe so. I, I don't I am just saying that. I don't, I don't know for sure. But in here they ask him another question to test him, but this one doesn't seem exactly like a trap. Um, it's it's interesting. And if we remember there's there are some Pharisees that Love the Lord and sought after the Lord and even some that believed Jesus remember Nicodemus in scripture um, and here the, the, uh, the, this one this isn't the whole group this is one uh, uh, Pharisee asking his teacher what is the greatest commandment in the law Jesus replied love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, if we look in Mark chapter 12, as a parallel verse talking about this. Um, the Pharisee that hears this is not upset. He actually agrees with what Jesus says. He says, man, that's right. Um, and uh, I'll read to you from Mark 12, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered him wisely, he said to, them, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So this is awesome teaching from our Lord, the two greatest commandments. Because, you know, it's interesting that all these things come back to the love, the law of love. Lord, the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You know, if that's our first and for, first and foremost in our heart, how does that affect what we do? How does that affect, you know... What we do in the day, how does that affect the decisions we make at work? The decisions we make in our personal life, the decisions we make when we're by ourselves, all by ourselves. If we're loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and then also if we're loving the neighbor as our, our neighbor as ourselves. That's going. Those, when Jesus says, "All along the prophets, hang on this. If you know you're not going to commit adultery, you're not going to commit murder, you're not going to going to do a whole lot of things that are bad." If you are loving the Lord first and have your eyes and mind and heart focused on him first, and then looking to the good of the people around you, um, amazing teaching uh, that he that he boils it down to that, um, but he he amazes everybody right, let's keep on going here uh, verse forty one through forty six and this is great, so you know Jesus has been asked all these difficult questions he gives the godly right answers to all of these uh, to all these questions and amazes people because there's all these questions that people have probably been juggling for a long time and he's, and he's got the answer and nobody, ha- and nobody has anything to say but now Jesus asked a question to the Pharisees so while the Pharisees were gathered together verse 41 Jesus asked them what do you think about the Messiah whose son is he the son of David they replied so Jesus asked a question. I wonder if they're shaking or if they're like, I don't, you know, what, whatever. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what their mindset is. But they ask them a question, and they don't have the right answer. They say, the son of David. Well, how do they know this? There's multiple uh, verses in the Old Testament. I think the first one comes up somewhere around 2 Samuel 7. Um, if we look in Psalm 89, verse 3, I'll, I'll read it to you. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations So there's all these verses um, in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah that is coming and he's going to be directly from the line of David. So the Pharisees say it right. Um, And he said to him, this is in verse 43, he said to them, he's going to ask another question, even a more difficult question. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies uh, under your feet. So I'll put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus quotes from Psalm 10. Now here's something the Pharisees do get right. They look at this Psalm of David. David writes this Psalm and they get it right that David is actually writing this prophetically looking forward to the Messiah. So when the Pharisees are reading this verse, they've got the right context. David's writing about the coming Messiah. I'm just going to read for us Psalm 110. You can listen along. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's fairly short. I'm just going to read the seven verses here. And this is David writing that the Lord is talking. And David says, The Lord says to my Lord, the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like a dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A very pivotal verse that we know about uh, Christ, uh, prophet, priest, and king. The Lord, has, uh, Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook along the way so that he will lift his head high. So this is a psalm of David looking forward to the Messiah who will be the prophet and priest and will rule the earth with the mighty hand, which is going to happen. Didn't ha- this isn't completely fulfilled in Christ's first coming. It will be fulfilled completely in his second coming. But the, but the Pharisees get it right that this is about the Messiah. And Jesus asked them, All right, so if this is the Messiah who's from the line of David... Why does David say, the Lord says to my Lord, if it's his great-great-grandson? It's not very common for people to call their great-great-grandson Lord, right? And especially in this culture where lines were very important and um, people um, uh, looked at uh, their lineage... And, and looked up to their forefathers. When people spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their fathers, and their fathers, and their fathers, it's always with respect going up. You, you would never hear Abraham talking about Isaac and saying, My Lord. You know, you say, you, you say, My Lord, to somebody that's greater than you. If you're saying that as a servant, you say it to your master. Uh, if, you're in, if you have an employer, you're saying that, Yes, My Lord. To your employer, um, if you uh, believe in Yahweh, you say that to God, Yes, My Lord. You don't say that to your kid or your kid's kid or your kid's 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 kid. So Jesus asked a very good question. So so the Messiah comes from David, and David calls him Lord. What sense does that make? Now they're expecting another person to come like David, to be a military leader that it's like it says in the end of that uh, Messianic uh, chapter that he's going to crush the nations, that he will rule, that Israel will finally live in these covenant promises and be free from uh, oppression. They will worship God and they will have this great king and leader like David, but it will be David's great 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 grandson sitting on the throne. Well, why is he calling him Lord? That doesn't make any sense. The Messiah, if he's just a guy, if he's just another person that was called by God, like all the forefathers, he would look to David possibly as Lord in some sense, but it wouldn't be the other way around. Jesus is saying something incredibly profound in this verse. He's saying, Pharisees, you've got it right. It is, he is coming from the line of David, but he's not just another guy. This Messiah is the Son of God. Um, it's is not just a person. So this is, I mean, it's a, it's a huge statement and nobody, and you notice nobody asks him when he says, why do you think David says this? The Lord said to my Lord, you know, the Pharisees don't say, I don't know, Jesus. What do you think? <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they didn't want to hear what he had to say and I will bet my bottom dollar that every person there that had been plotting against Jesus also well knew that Jesus was from the line of David. They all, because it was very well known. Oh, isn't this Joseph's son, you know, isn't this guy from... so Everybody knows where he came from. Everybody knows who his parents are. Everybody knows where his parents registered for the tax. The city of David... Um, I guarantee you that when they're looking at plots to how to bring him down, somebody said, all right, somebody needs to go check the books, somebody needs to go check the records. Who, what line is he from, really? And if he's from another line, they could come and say, all right, everybody that follows Jesus, just so you know, he might be a teacher, he might heal some people. We disagree with his teachings, but we can say definitively that he is not the Messiah because he came from the line of so-and-so. He did not come from the line of David. We've got the records. You can come check them out. But they can't do that. Because they know where he's from, and so he says this statement, and they're sitting there. I guarantee you, there's some plotters thinking, "Oh man, here we go." You know, so son of David, yes, son of God, yes. So Jesus asks this rhetorical question here in um, in the book of Matthew. He actually he doesn't answer it right there. He, does, you know, he doesn't ha- have the answer. He says, how, how is this? But he doesn't answer it. He does answer it later in the book of Revelation. If we look at Revelation 22, verse 16. Revelation 22, 16. reading here from the NIV. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He is... How is it that David calls him Lord? Well, that's because he is the offspring of David because he was born from Mary, uh, but he is the root because he created David and he's the son of God. So we have here in Revelation the answer to the rhetorical question or to the question that he asks to the Pharisees. Yes, he is the offspring of David as far as the line goes, as men count it. He's also the root of David because... He he is the creator. He is God. And the Pharisees have nothing to say to this. Now, so we we don't need to make the same mistake um, as the Pharisees and as other people through history have made in misidentifying who Jesus is. You know, he's not just a good teacher. There's tons of people all over the world that say Jesus was a great guy. You know, he taught love. He didn't, um, he didn't you know, cause an insurrection when he probably could have. So people respect Jesus for all of these things. But they totally miss what Jesus says. When he's making these statements like we're saying today, like he says here in Scripture, he's saying that, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am God. Um, don't misidentify him for a decent teacher. He's either telling the truth and he is the Son of God or he's a liar. There's not a, there's not a he's a good guy in between there. Uh, And I believe that He is telling the truth on who He is and that He is the Son of God. And that I also believe that He's coming back to put all wrongs to right. He is the root and the offspring. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for these verses that we have and um, for Your teaching. We thank You so much for Jesus. And we thank You so much, Lord, that You loved us so much that... That you came for us, Lord. And wow, the very thought of that, there is and there is nothing that I could do to deserve uh, your incredible love for me. And there's nothing I can do to make myself worthy of you. And that actually gives me a lot of comfort, Lord, that you loved us so much that you came for us and that you made a way. Uh, and Lord, so we, are, we, we say that we are your people and we will follow you. And we thank you for what you have done. And we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, help us to be about your work, uh, about your kingdom, that we would be quick to tell people the good news of Jesus, that we would be quick um, to love our neighbors as ourselves, And, and for, first and foremost, Lord, that we would love you with all of our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and all of our strength. Um, it's an easy verse to read, but Lord, with my my sinful flesh lord that's often a very hard um a hard command to live and lord i want to serve you and i want to live for you and i want to love you with all that i am so i pray that you would walk with us lord and lord that you would uh, convict us of sin and root out things that don't need to be our lives and that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged and I know that every person in this room is going through different things right now and are in different situations, Lord. I pray if anybody doesn't know you truly, that this morning that they would bow their knee to you uh, and that they would make you the Lord of their lives and that they would look to Jesus and that he would be the author and perfecter of their faith, Lord. And for those of us that do know you, Lord, um, I pray that, that you would do in each heart what you need to do um, to make us more like your son uh, and to make us love you more and to love those around us more and to be about your work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.